Are you going to take the first step into the enchanted forest of the unconscious or do I have to drag you in there? Am I going to take the first step into the enchanted, unconscious, hidden forest? The forest of terrible things. The forest of fear, doom, disgust, debauchery. Well, you say that, but Carl Rogers doesn't believe that human beings are fundamentally grotesque in that way. He thinks that we are all fundamentally good and that amongst all the anger and sexual desires and so on, um, there is a core of being that is just good and that when people go through the process of integrating aspects of the unconscious into consciousness, they discover that their true self is nowhere near as bad as they feared it might be. Yeah, but we're not talking about Carl Rogers today as such, or are we talking about Carl Rogers today? Not specifically, although I'll happily talk about Carl Rogers at any point. Lovely Uncle Carl. Um, one of my two favourite Carls. Wait, I thought it was one of your three favourite Carls. Well, I wouldn't say Marx is one of my favourite Carls, because mm -hmm. I have a lot of criticism of the Communist Manifesto. Mm -hmm. And given that it was written uh, in the mid-1800s, a good actually it was I do know this it was written 34 years before Freud started his clinical studies at the at the hospital of Vienna mm -hmm. and from what I've learned from that terrible Netflix series Freud that was when he just snorted cocaine and became a rampaging corpse hunter he wasn't snorting cocaine he was drinking it wasn't he drinking cocaine yeah yeah like popeye takes the spinach to then go out and save the world yeah freud, like sherlock holmes takes the opium yeah freud would neck some cocaine and then go out into the streets of vienna to solve mysteries of the occult yeah and neither of us know yet whether that is a true representation of what Freud did. But, but I'm sure we'll find out. <laughs> but that was 34 years after the publication of the Communist Manifesto. As far as I'm concerned, Freud began the process of revolutionising the human understanding of the mind, the, yeah, yeah. the unconscious. Therefore, I have lots of criticisms of political philosophies that came before that because mm -hmm, I don't mm -hmm. think they fully incorporate what it is to be a human being. And that's what that's the bee in your bonnet at the minute, isn't it? It is, but it's not what we're talking about today. But it's part of what we're talking about today. It will always be what we're talking about as long as it's the bee in my bonnet, but... Uh -huh. Yeah, but what I suppose I'm getting at is you and I today want to talk about the unconscious mind, but I want to talk about our unconscious minds and you might want to talk about the history of the unconscious mind and I think some of these things will come into it. <laughs> It has been more than 100 years since Freud tried to solve the puzzle of why he fundamentally desired to slaughter his father and penetrate his mother in service to Venus. Carl Jung and others developed Freud's revolutionary insights into what is basically the practice of psychoanalysis today, the purpose of which is for an individual to integrate their unconscious ideas into consciousness not to accept who they are, but to become who they are, to enjoy life as an integrated self, newly able to feel a semblance of will and meaning. 
So why the fudge are we not all enlightened beings by now? Why are we still mostly the puppets of genes inherited from prehistoric fish, values internalised from cultures and parents that find truth so disgustingly repellent? Why is the unconscious mind still such a mystery, the unfalsifiable obsession of just a few individuals who call themselves therapists or the rapists? How can we know what is unknowable and what would make people want to? But it's not all fishing for scary penis envy and displaced diarrhoea. <laughs> oh, by the way, when I say why are we not all enlightened, I'm talking about the masses, not myself. But it's not all fishing for scary penis envy and displaced diarrhoea. The people who come out of psychoanalysis know the only thing they can possibly know for sure, that their conscious experience feels better after the process of integration. So, if you have a drip of curiosity to discover that which is the core of your being, the controller of your life, so that you can use this knowledge and consciousness to become a person and not a puppet, unleash your only semblance of free will, then come with us into the dark, enchanted forest of the unconscious. We can't solve all your violent sexual mysteries, but we can certainly talk about the allure of your mother's nipples. Sorry, that was a Freudian clip. I meant to say, we can certainly navigate some of the territory of the psychodynamic unknown. I am tall. The trees are tall. I am the trees. Come inside me. So we're going into this forest of terrible things. I don't know how long we're going to be in here, Ooh. but I'm not going to say this is part one of three. And then it turns out that there are theta parts. What? I'm just using symbolic language as opposed to English so that we are all on the same page, that this is not a logical progression through sensible, rational thought. Well, then you shouldn't be saying to me what I should and shouldn't be talking about, eh? 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 Although I'm not saying to you what you should and shouldn't be talking about. I've merely drawn a very complicated map and slapped it on the table so that we can navigate these uncharted territories with at least some reference points without me having pages and pages of notes and desperately trying to cram them all into an episode and giving 30-minute monologues. And then only when I come up for air, you look at me withered and disillusioned and say something along the lines of, well, I mean, weren't we all like that? Uh, uh, Well, don't we always do that? So, back to my question. Are you going to take the first step into the forest or am I going to drag you in? Well, you know, I really don't know what that means because to me that means are you going to kick us off or am I? And, you know, the the desire for you to kick this off is, is so minimal for me. What with you having already done a very... Thorough introduction. A very to what, exciting introduction. To what, a very exciting, thorough introduction to what you want to talk about today. So we've done that. I'm wondering what you think the unconscious mind is and what does your unconscious mind look like? Because you're saying the... the, Describe the forest again. I don't think I have described the forest, but it's... Describe the forest, James. (laughs) Initially, you can see through some of the branches. Uh So that is the pre-symbolic unconscious or the subconscious the things that you can kind of start to be aware of even if you don't fully understand them things that you can draw into consciousness so consciousness is no trees 
just to be clear, what you can see in your mind's <laughs> eye at, at any time, your 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 inner monologue, your the pictures and images that are bouncing around your head. That's your consciousness, right? That has a linear logic and follows the language that you use. And interestingly enough for me, so therefore not interesting for you, the listener, but bear with, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I remember the first time when I was in France and I suddenly noticed that the the monologue in my head was in French and not English. Probably not for the first time. It's just the first time I noticed that that was happening. And it felt like an altered state of consciousness for me because 30 years of only ever having an English constant stream of my own divine thoughts. And suddenly there was a French stream of my own divine thoughts that seemed all the more divine because... Yeah, tripping on French. Yeah. But the point is that everything that happens in consciousness happens in terms of language. An image? An image, yes. And sound? And sound. Potentially. And and sometimes a kind of a sensation. But it depends whether we locate our thoughts only in our mind or do we also locate our thoughts but throughout you, our body. But if you're, talking, if you're talking about images and sensations, if you pay attention to them, you start to use language to describe them. Okay, here, I tried to do this with you before and you came up with some, I can't even remember what you did to stop me from doing it, but it probably involved diarrhea, okay? What I want you to do for a minute so that you can experience your conscious mind is just give yourself a moment, close your eyes, maybe scan your body, you know, head to toe, how you feel. And yes, there's obviously language and English, I'm guessing at the moment at work here. But when you do notice something that's maybe slightly uncomfortable or slightly tight, something muscular or, or you know, it, it could really be anything. It could be something quite pleasant. It could be a warmth or a, or a sensation on you. You don't necessarily turn it automatically into language, do you? But give yourself a moment to just see what's going on. Obviously, I'm doing the same, James. I'm not just watching you. And three, two, one, and we're back in the room. So, yeah, the sensory inputs are feelings, interpretations of the signals coming from our sensory... Thingies. Thingies everywhere. Nerve endings and whatnot. Nerve endings, that's it. Okay. Thank you. Thank heavens we have a medical professional in the room. Uh, okay. <laughs> Did you convert them into words instantly? No, I think, no, I was totally misleading what I said. The, Not totally. No, 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 no. You're, you're on the right track. You're trying to make sure, I think you're trying to point out how sensible almost our conscious yes. mind is trying to be. Rational and and descriptive and, and um, even argumentative and has conscious, uh, uh, like um, uh, a conversation with ourselves about what is in inverted commas, really going on. Yes. You mentioned cognitive biases to me yesterday and told me to look them up and you said there were about 12 or something and I found a list of probably about 500. So uh, that's... I said there were pages of them. Oh, okay. Thank you. So that's maybe in another episode or another... Definitely. Time. And also someone has picked me up outside of the public, outside of the private practice podcast studios that's brought up really strong feelings in me that I'm very angry about and very upset about uh, on that theme so we should definitely come back to bias soon yeah we wouldn't want to have an episode where we don't say something that we're not going to talk about and that we might come back to (laughs) 
I don't know how many of those we've actually come back to yet. Probably, it's definitely some of them. Perversion, definitely. Um, something rather or other else as well. <laughs> but I'm now going to say something in a way that makes me seem special, but there's nothing special about me, and you can turn it right round into everyone is like that. Yeah, okay. All right, give us a moment. Can I have one question before you dive into this yes so now as you're talking to me and you're thinking about your conscious mind and we're not focusing on the body and we're not like doing that little exercise what's going on for you in your conscious mind now not not content but how are you what's the quality of it what's the what's going on how is it happening i've always been quite excited when i have to suddenly talk in front of a microphone and especially doing something like this where it's about something of interest to me um there's an excitement that makes me almost feel like i'm paying attention to every second as opposed to just letting time pass or letting things happen sort of in flow yes Mm. Uh, there have been times when i'm sure it has been clouded with a lot of kind of unconscious desires probably to make sure I'm presenting myself as well as I can so that no one will be able to criticise me, so that I will be able to listen back to myself and think, yes, I nailed it. No one could possibly think I'm not excellent. I got it right. Yes. I'm a winner. Yes. I'm perfect. Um, Only from whatever, two or three years of editing this podcast now, I've noticed that at the beginning, when I was most desperate to, to nail it, as if live all I mostly spent my time doing in the edit was editing out all my repetition Mm, my uh, arms yeah mm, uh. these days there is much less the only time I edit out lots of arms is when we get into topics that are really complicated okay and I don't I feel like I don't want to go on and on about them a lot and I'm trying to be a bit more concise on the spot, then I'm almost inevitably going to um. Okay, so reeling you back to right now, so are you ex- are you experiencing your conscious experience as an in- internal monologue, or is it a sense of sensations? You know, is your conscious being right now sensations and feelings and... I don't know, you know, I'm asking... Oh, yes, you. it has to be, because if I've got the furious dialogue going on in consciousness I, i'm not listening to a word you're saying and i'm not even ready to say the next thing cool i have to pay attention excellent that's all i needed to know now i'm sorry i interrupted you and distracted you where were you you were about to tell us why we might think that you're glorifying yourself but actually we should also glorify ourselves off you go when I refer to myself as the autiste, it entirely comes from you pointing that out and the episode of a previous time on this podcast when we, we had an episode going into looking at a test for autism and seeing if I um, <laughs> successfully passed it to get my autism card. And sadly, I got almost there and then w- wasn't quite allowed through the pearly gates at the final moment. No. But it means that I am, to some extent, autistic, just not not allowed to have the card, not allowed to just whip out the card and use it just to explain away um, my behaviour. However, the concept of me being an autiste is grounded in a lot of emphasis on rationalisation and consciousness. So most of my development at the moment 
is along the lines of trying to be less rational. Go on. Uh, so I always used to be very strongly atheist. Before you start to get uncomfortable, I'm not about to announce that I have finally found God. Don't worry. Uh, that, you know, that's, that would be your, your you. That would be you. You do you and all that. And that's fine. I don't mind. Carry on. I still do not believe in God. And Phew. <laughs> and the more interested I get in religion, the less inclined I am to sort of like devote my life to following a religious text. It's more that I find it interesting and see parallels with things that are not traditionally religious, other teachings in philosophy and so on. So it's interesting. But there are other examples, but we can just use this one. The idea that I used to be such an absolute atheist. Don't be stupid. God doesn't exist, obviously. When is society going to evolve to the point where uh, we don't have any of that hocus-pocus nonsense? When are we all going to be wonderful, evolved, rational beings? Surely the only reason there are problems in the world is because people are irrational and when those stupid idiots can learn not to be irrational and to just be sensible God, and yeah. do things properly like I would in my utopia that I used to build as a child then we will solve all the world's problems then people will be interested in learning and learning as much as possible so that they're not stupid anymore they will not do things that negatively affect them. So they will not smoke because it negatively affects them. The only reason people smoke is because they're stupid and irrational. Stupid. And if they were more like me, they wouldn't be stupid and irrational and they wouldn't smoke, etc., etc. You can imagine how that plays out infinitely in my childhood head. Yeah, I can. And also I can imagine how much that would affect your your relationships with all people you come into contact with because you're so unforgiving of stupidity constantly judging people negatively and constantly wanting a world that i never see and therefore constantly feeling like i don't fit in and nothing makes sense and everything inside my head is different and better than what is in reality and that's just constantly confusing <laughs> different was... and better <laughs> yes okay so okay wait 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 no you i think you've veered off here though again so you're saying this is what your internal world was like, and you were saying that... Um, it's because I'm an autiste. It's because you're an autiste. But you're going to say... No, <laughs> no, no, I'm not. No, we're all just like that. No, no, we're not all just like that, which is... Um, I'm very much not like that. I've got this strong, strong urge to talk about this problem I've got, but I don't think it's for now. Okay, let's, so why are you saying that you're glorifying yourself by saying this? I don't, I don't see that as glorifying. I see it as sad i see it as an isolated young person growing up in a world where he is totally unforgiving of all all the failures of humanity that i think make us partially make us human you know that we smoke or that we drink or that we eat late at night and then have a bad tummy all throughout the all throughout our sleep and then complain about it the next day as if it wasn't our own fault for the benefit of the listener mm. dan has been out for most of the day i have been on the roof of the private practice where there's a lovely garden and when dan got back he came over there 
and almost immediately I launched into accusing him of having bad dietary habits and I probably used um, my loud booming voice and there were certainly other uh, members of the private practice community enjoying the afternoon and I was essentially drawing all their attention to the recesses of your intestines that were bubbling up with potential diarrhea and flatulence. Yes, yes you did. Um, but that isn't what we're talking about now. I'm happy well, to actually, talk about it. Oh, is it what we're talking about? Well, we could now look at bodily displacement as one of the aspects of the unconscious. But let's not. Let's... Ah, no. Oh, but I like that one. Okay, but, okay hang on. Have you numbered these? Or is... Well, there, there is some numbering. So there's a number on it. So what we're looking at, uh, James is going to describe, it's a beautiful, intricate, potentially a little bit chaotic for my liking in terms of the, the level of content. It's a map. Tell us about your map of the subconscious archipelago dash forest well i'm glad you said that because i never actually described the forest i just said we're currently in the in the conscious which is no trees so you i said you can start to see through the branches into the subconscious and i've definitely in the past used the word subconscious and unconscious interchangeably you've said that in common on, on the street talk, the, the language of the kids. Yeah. That just happens all the time. Yeah, yeah. You know, urban people, we, yeah. we, just, we just use subconscious and unconscious interchangeably. We don't even give a shit. And I probably will continue to do that when I'm uh, in, involved in the moment and not analysing. And, the... you know, we apologise to the listener for that if you are a highbrow, well-trained, fully, or, or, full autiste, I guess. Um, but the... The subtle difference, as I understand it, is that the subconscious is to, it's to do with gradations of consciousness. So conscious is absolute. If you are aware of it, it is conscious. There's a very clear dividing line between that which you are able to know as being your experience right now, the only real thing you can know to be true. Yeah. And everything else. And all the other things that can be brought into consciousness. So, for example, things you've temporarily forgotten but might remember later on in the day, that could be said to be subconscious. So it's not repressed. It's not seemingly impossible to fish out. Mm -hmm. uh, it's something that you can't remember now but probably will remember shortly if you're jogged, if you're triggered. And that's the that's the peering through the undergrowth part. So that's when we first start to push aside some of those nettles, sting ourselves a little bit because mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you remember that something unfortunate is going to happen and you'd forgotten it for a reason. Yeah, and you can do that um, by maybe focusing on an unpleasant feeling and allowing yourself to kind of explore it just a little bit like a kind of a something in your stomach that doesn't feel right or a certain tension in your shoulders and and or a or, or a certain scratchiness quality to your current consciousness as if something's not quite right it's not something that you can definitely describe and then you think oh fucking hell yeah it's because oh, yeah last night i was texting dot 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 and he said 
this thing that is so irritating and I can't disprove it. I can't I can't disagree with it. I'm angry about it. And you bring it into your conscious mind and then it's there irritating you and it's a problem for you to deal with. But for most of the day, it's just there in the background and itchy scratching us something through the undergrowth, something that wants to rear its ugly head and invade your conscious mind. Do you like that? Yes. Okay, cool, 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 cool. Um, so... What more have we got there? What what else is there in this forest? Well, the deep, recessed, unconscious. So this is this is the thing that I want to say most people don't know about. But it's so ridiculous trying to describe this because on the one hand, obviously, everyone doesn't know that which they don't know. On the other hand, if you just took a random person on the street and said, do you understand the term unconscious they'd probably be able to answer with something reasonable that you could understand i guess it depends which street you're on and who you ask but yeah <laughs> so i don't so i don't really know how to how to voice this or whether it's worth voicing the idea at all but i guess my guess would be that most people would say oh unconscious is something that's not in your mind like they wouldn't perhaps well, understand that, that do, yes. the depth Excellent, of it. but that doesn't make sense. The unconscious is your mind. Yeah, but I guess the mind is a, I want a better word, but like a euphemism for thoughts for many people. Yeah, so they would be using the mind as a euphemism for consciousness and it would be totally incorrect to me, <laughs> but totally correct to them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. Uh, and as is always the way with language. Ex- exactly. One of the many things that you want to get back to from our anti-fragile episode, whereby you said we, I said, yeah, but that's all about linguistics, and that's not what we're talking about now. And you indignantly said, why not? Just because you didn't want to talk about it now, and that's a potential thing that we might come back to. Yeah, it could be on the list that language meaning. Yeah, uh, because. It is pretty much impossible to convey a thought through language to another person and for them to precisely understand exactly that thought as you perceive it. And uh, did I just say pretty much impossible? It is totally, definitely 100% impossible. There is no ambiguity, no grey area. It is impossible. So no matter how we try and describe the unconscious, the listener will already be on some gradation of having no clue what we're talking about right through to being a neuroscientist or a a, a respected Jungian analyst somewhere. For, for example. Potentially on uh, Cape Cod. Yeah, uh, yeah, 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 wherever that is. Uh, just referring to my wonderful... Yeah, no way, James. ...correspondence yeah, that no, I received from... No way, no yeah. way, yeah, great. But that's not for the, that's that's not for the episode. Not for we'll, episode I'll, I'll gloat about that off mic. Yeah. Thank yeah. you very much to the, we for actually the both, for wonderful words that we, I received from a, a certified Jungian analyst with letters after her name. What, how, how you lifted my plinth higher than it ever even was before. James, interesting thing, actually, two interesting things is, one is I would imagine she would love any Jungian analyst, actually, I said she, any Jungian analyst would love to get their hands on you. <laughs> <clears throat> Second, secondarily to that, we actually both had uh, some form of contact from celebrities this week. I was also followed on Twitter by the very fantastic and quite witty Reginald D. Hunter, the American comedian. Well, remember last week I said that 
if you have a celebrity following you on social media, it carries no more inherent meaning than anything else in the universe. I know. And that was the interesting thing, because I thought as soon as this person followed me, it was from some comment I said about the NHS, and I didn't hashtag heroes, it's just so we're really clear. Um, I thought, oh, how should I communicate with this person? And I realized, I thought, maybe I should say how much I like his, maybe I should say this, maybe, and then I realized there's no, there's nothing, there's nothing. It doesn't matter. Follow me on Twitter. It doesn't matter. I don't have to communicate with him. I don't have to let him know that I like that he followed me. Unless, of course, communicating with him is totally in alignment with your fabricated life meaning and therefore you should totally do that as a flow activity in alignment with your telos which will take you to a position of an impression of heaven on earth instead of the hell where you start off in your confused state of adolescence when you are finally having the the strings cut from your parents and you're let off into the world and everything is confusing and (laughs) traumatic and horrific and you gradually fumble around to try and become a person and this is what we're talking about so in the introduction i said why are we not all enlightened humans and like i said i was referring to the masses not myself but well, because you're an enlightened human. Well, therein lies the joke, because I have not been through the process of therapy. So when that Jungian analyst manages to get their hands on me, oh, finally, please, sooner rather than later, finally, I will be able to become an enlightened human. But until that point, I'm still fumbling around in the dark like the listener. That is the whole point of this podcast. We are fumbling around in the dark. We should probably call this Fumbles in the Dark rather than Private Practice Podcast. Well, I mean, one of my favourite podcasts is called Voices in the Dark. So if we called this Fumbles in the Dark, it would be a bit of a... It would literally be two fingers up to them in so many ways, but at the same time, a big kiss to them. It would be two fingers into their darkness. Yes. And talking of that darkness in the unconscious mind, talking of that which we do not know... Have you, in all of your investigation, because that's really what you're doing right now, whereas some of us are binging on Netflix and shitty takeaways from uh, local high streets, you are binging on knowledge. Yes. You are overloading yourself, and I'm just waiting to see whether you will explode. (laughs) (laughs) Like the the packet of chicken-flavoured cat food that we had on the kitchen table yesterday that was bursting... Yeah, in many ways, another good uh, metaphor for the unconscious mind, because that which lies beneath does want to come out. That which is hidden in the undergrowth does want to come out. Okay, good. I'm glad you said that, because now I can desperately try and show off that I understand the scientific point of view uh, from what I've read of Carl Jung's On the Nature of the Psyche, but may potentially fail by mis communication or even if I get it absolutely spot on even if I say words that were better than Carl Jung the listener may interpret them as incorrect and criticize me negatively with their internal voice so I don't need to try and do that I will just say some things because I like saying things so according to Jung in his very complicated and dry scientific book on the nature of the psyche which is actually two papers and they were written in quite a defensive way I think if his 
analyst was reading them, they might have a thing or two to say, because at the time, psychoanalysis was generally dismissed by the scientific community as being witchcraft and nonsense, because as we're talking about today, how can you prove the unknowable? It doesn't stand up to scientific method, or at least it didn't seem to at the time. It's just a case of these crackpots claiming that you want to, that all men want to slay their father and penetrate their mother and all this sort of stuff and the sci- the real scientists will come in the room from their exploration of thermodynamics and so on and they'll say you've just been smoking something haven't you or they'd say poppycock yeah so Jung was I would say desperate to prove the genuine science of psychoanalysis and so he wrote in quite a no 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 way but using lots of very technical scientific so words. So no 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 Actually, it's a very good book. Actually, I round about what year was this? So you could do it again. So Karl Marx, round about when? A, the Communist Manifesto was published in the 80s. But that, that, what, Just I don't know what no, that's no. got to do with anything, to be honest. Obviously, you don't know what it's got to do with anything because okay. you're not like that. You don't care whether people follow a certain flow in this. You right. don't care. Okay, well, we're dealing with a topic. Totally randomly, the Communist Manifesto by Karl Marx was published in sort of like 18. Mid 1800s. Mid 1800s. But it will show you how societal views were changing and culture was changing and, and, and society itself was changing and how intellectual thought was changing. Round about then, when did uh, Freud pop up with his clinics and his uh, fuck your mother, kill your father theory? Turn of the century. So almost 1900 sort of, sort of thing. Yes. Yeah. And then Jung, when was he writing? From about... The, I think he was at his peak around the 1930s to 50s. The, the Undiscovered Self was published uh, shortly after the Second World War. Okay, cool. See, that's helpful for me, and I'm sure it's helpful for the listener. Carry on. But is it helpful from the listener that you are leaning back from your microphone? Who knows? So, the whole idea of the unconscious seemingly is unfalsifiable, doesn't conform to the scientific method of being able to um, prove results through scientific testing. So you can't say, my hypothesis is that in in the unconscious, all men want to slay their father and penetrate their mother and then to disprove it i'm going to conduct this perfectly rigorous and and excellent scientific test and oh look it cannot disprove it therefore it must be one of the laws of science i will write that into the official laws of science and everyone will accept it unconditionally that cannot happen because the process is just one person speculating about something they can never fully know and which as i've said is impossible for the the subject to convey accurately with language and so the whole thing can in the eyes of many just fall apart as being nonsense and that is one of the reasons I think why a hundred years later we still don't really accept this process of integration. Most people don't explore their unconscious mind. Really it's only it's limited to the people who can afford psychoanalysis and want it because it's not forced on people and it can't be forced on people 
and those of us who try and find out about it and try and work out some of these ideas in relation to ourselves without actually going through the process and then for everyone else it's luck and guesswork as to whether they ever discover um, ways of becoming their truer self as opposed to just living out the fantasies and archetypes of a culture and oh so much in that but what 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 then do you think the main purpose is of um becoming aware bringing your unconscious thoughts or your unconscious desires or your unconscious drives into consciousness what's why would we do that if there's so few people doing it and everyone still lives and gets through life why would we do that well my answer now is different to how it would have been a couple of weeks ago that's the rate at which i'm packing that fudge of knowledge into my brain um and so the thing that i'm reading at the moment is on becoming a person by carl rogers which you lent me and makes a lot of sense uh, as to why you like that book and lent it to me, much like the flow book. So previously, I probably would have said that I probably would have gone more along the the lines of the human beings are all full of evil and malice. <laughs> and for as long as that's repressed, we are completely deluded. And um, the way that we act in the world is just that an act it's pretense and so when you come to terms with the fact that you can be malevolent that you can be evil that you can harm people and that you want to and you want to do it viciously and sexually only then can you balance that with what you think you want to be which is some kind of nice person for the most part for most of us and so, yeah, we're not talking about kinky bedroom antics or kitchen antics or car park antics, sauna antics, parents' house antics. We're not talking about, well, we, we are talking about that, but, not, but I would have previously said that you, the, the purpose of going through the self-integration process is to recognise the evil that is repressed inside you so that you know that, that your whole self is a balance of good and evil. And when you're aware of both of them, instead of denying the bad and exaggerating the good with cognitive biases, mm-hmm. only then can you have a better picture of yourself and can you start to act in the world more honestly and to be more purposeful about how you want to be as an individual and not living up to expectations and so on. And whilst some of that is, is I think, true and holds, the difference in emphasis from my influence of Carl Rogers mm. is this idea that, that when people go through the process of psychoanalysis, they often come out of it. If their analyst provides a relationship of openness and allows them to be less defensive um, and gives them the, the mental space to be able to do so, as opposed to thinking of them as being a problem with a puzzle that needs to be solved, then that person comes out, usually if not always, finding that they like themselves more than they expected to. So that doesn't mean that you don't find unpleasant thoughts. And every human being is capable of evil 
Um, I think this is one of the best, le- or the, the, the ultimate lesson of the 20th century is that when you look at the, the destruction from, get your glass ready to toast the Holocaust, the, the sheer number of, of Nazi guards and so on goes to show that the, the German nation is not an objectively evil nation compared with all other nations. It, they were just normal people who in that situation were suddenly acting out evil. And in another situation, there is no way that they would have been complicit with what happened. There's no way that they would have thought that it is of them fundamentally to be a part of killing six million people in concentration camps. And the same goes for Stalin's uh, Russia and any other atrocity. It's just normal people. And when they're in the trenches shooting... They don't know who they're shooting. It's just the situation that demands the action. They're, they're more or less out of control in that situation. And so it's not that everyone is fundamentally evil. It's that everyone has the potential for evil. And when you go through the process of integration, you will find things that you don't like, ideas that come from your inherited genes of survival, um, aggression, and sexual fantasies. I mean, we do want to survive. We do want to defeat others for our own... Uh, well, that's not entirely accurate, but we, we want to preserve ourselves and reproduce. Those are written into our DNA, and that can lead to ideas of violence, both physical and sexual. And I think there's things that are more subtle than that about than just wanting to reproduce and and survive. I think there's things that are much more mundane, much more day-to-day. You know, we want to be heard. We want to be listened to. We want to be taken seriously. Or we want to be um, loved. We want to be appreciated. We want to be... Um, thought of in certain ways and those things although well thought of in certain ways is where we have the boundary of the true desire and the internalized necessity so like if i say i want to be thought of as being a respectable upstanding member of the community that's not necessarily my true self it's more likely that i have internalized in my superego the voices of the more patronizing members of that community and I feel I should live up to their standards it's not that I have studied philosophy and I have take I've drawn from Aristotle an ethic that I think is appropriate for how I should live my life it's more that I have unconsciously internalized ideas from parents teachers and society Whereas if you say, the other things that you said, I want to be loved. I mean, you can internalise that from watching Love Actually. But you can also feel that as a true feeling. Perhaps. I'm I'm not sure that I actually am able to answer that. But yeah, okay, okay, okay. But we have more mundane desires naturally, I think, from birth. 
you know, rather than it being, I want better words for this, but they're not coming to me, like a transformed, twisted, publicly acceptable version of our deepest, darkest, perverse desires, I think the part of us, and you were using the words good and evil, um, but like the lighter human, positive human parts of us want to be loved and want to be a part of something. And I think that's a natural inherent desire for connection and love. And I think, uh, I, I, I don't think it's just a, a twisted way of getting to fuck well yeah so i mean I, we can't even no, no, no matter how many episodes uh if that's what you want to call these in this non-binary mini-series into the forest of terrible things there's there aren't enough podcast episodes potential to humankind to fully go through the history of evolution of homo sapiens as to what where our, every single gene comes from what it desires uh, and to absolutely categorise everything that is inherited and everything that is internalised from culture and parenting, uh, distinguished from that which is unique to any one particular self. Yeah, and we, we, we will also come back to an episode on attachment where I'm sure we'll talk in the way that we do. But I think, you know, experiments in the 50s, uh, 1950s showed that if you take human contact and human connection and love away from a baby they get ill and they die so to me the need for love and the need for connection is a natural at birth human drive it is something that is there before all of the shit develops okay so but okay so with all of that the question that I asked, why is it that 100 years later we're not all enlightened beings? Why have we not just learnt how to be enlightened? Why, why is it that, I mean, maybe one day in the future, Elon Musk will drill our brains and be able to wire us up to understand everything in our unconscious and n nothing will be a mystery anymore. And by that point, we'll realise that we are utterly pointless lumps of limited flesh and bone and blood and we may as well just give up and hand over to the robots to take over but until that day comes we are consciousness within bodies and there's not a lot we can do about it so i'm just living in, in, in those parameters for now i'm drawing some boundaries i have no idea how that relates to what i just said but okay and i don't know how it relates to your question either the unfalsifiableness of the unconscious so is it valid scientists can't prove it people are suspicious the idea that <clears throat> Jung talks about a shadow and archetypes and um, uses religious iconography that's not science that's not uh, what's his name the guy who looks into space Brian, Professor Brian that's not Brian Professor Cox. Brian Cox territory he's the proper scientist talking proper science and Freud is the nut job and if you watch that awful Netflix series you will know that he's not a proper scientist he's just a wacko drinking cocaine and telling you that you want to slay your father and penetrate your mother that's not science enough of this nonsense shut down the podcast and move on to something sensible for the love of all things 
not holy because that would be irrational, stupid religion. Yes. Okay. And what did what did Jung then say or do to to kind of move on from this uh, kill your father, fuck your mother kind of? Um... That's where I was, and then we went off on many tangents. So we're back to on the nature of the psyche. Uh huh. He used lots of scientific words to equate psychic energy with that which is observable and testable in terms of physical energy, thermodynamics. Ah, right, yes, yes. So much like when you turn the cooker on and it gets hot, that energy is passed into the metal of the saucepan and then it's passed into the water and then it's passed into your pasta and then when you put the pasta in the bowl, it feels warmer than when you took it out the fridge and then and you can test that it's proper science it's serious it's not the scientist who explains that is not saying and that pastor is going to make you want to slay your father and penetrate your mother the scientist is just saying look you can see this sensible science you can feel it you can prove it or disprove it yeah yeah there you go a law of science we can all sleep peacefully tonight no nightmares are coming out of this no sexual fantasies are coming out of this for most people. <laughs> no one is going to be looking at that jar of pesto and thinking, do I spoon it onto my pasta or do I finger it into my vagina? Or do I slather my mother with it or smash it and use it to stab my father? <laughs> hey, Daddy. Do I take that glass and ram it down my father's well, neck no. until he can't breathe anymore? Wow, okay. Um, interesting. interesting so Jung was trying to explain that when ideas get repressed in the unconscious and you're not able to access them they don't just disappear like a magical fairy into the darkest recesses of the enchanted forest they are psychic energy and that energy holds the same property in terms of move aroundiness, whatever you'd call that. I don't know the scientific words here. He uses them in the book, but I've forgotten them. Dynamic. It has the same value of energy in the unconscious as if it were conscious, which is why it comes out, which is why I've written down diarrhea, lies, stains, itches, etc. When these things come out... I was just going to say, just for the listener's benefit, we all know... Well, most of us now know that IBS is a very common condition which is seems to be triggered by food. But actually there's a huge component which might be considered to be triggered by stress. And that's one way very much of just looking at how... And it's not quite what you're talking about, but feelings are displayed through the body. They come out through the body. I think it's exactly what I'm talking about. Stress is when the external world doesn't match the internal idea of how it should be and therefore you your mind is in a position of chaos Mm -hmm. and that is intolerable and therefore that psychic energy in being repressed has to go somewhere because it doesn't disappear you cannot get rid of ideas of anything like this so when it's displaced it comes out as diarrhea but Still, the idea's in there. Yes. So the other couple of other examples that I would give is the pacing. When someone's pacing, we all, you know, even in in the most simple, basic, you know, cartoon for a child, if someone's pacing backwards and forwards, we know that they are 
anxious or they are stressed or they are worried about something, but they aren't necessarily conscious of that. They're just, they've got this, this movement about it, that they're trying to deal with something. And there is a certain energy that's come from nowhere. And we also know from, you know, meditation and you know, even the really classic, um, what would you call it? Stereotypical image of meditation is peaceful stillness, isn't it? That actually the the uh, the brain and the body have this, or the mind and the body have this inextricable, almost inexplicable link with movement uh, and with sensation, which is which we don't we can't really explain. You know, we can talk around it and we can talk about it and we can use metaphors and I don't know maybe you have read more than me on this and I'm sure scientists have got some explanations but actually from my learning there's not a good strong theory about how this unconscious should we say or even conscious thought and uh, uh, our conscious mind creates movement in the body through um, you know, through through diarrhea, if you will, or pacing. We don't really understand that. And, and you're saying that Jung Jung was trying to get get to the point where he could stick two fingers up the thermodynamics people and say, "Aha, my energy is as good as your energy." That's why he called it psychodynamics because he was drawing a parallel with the thermodynamics in terms of explaining energy and demystifying the the unconscious to whatever extent it can be demystified is it is that really well that's my interpretation and i can only interpret because i do not have access to the actual ideas as they were pristinely in his brain all i can do is read the book and try and remember it now on the spot and say some words that i think represent how i vaguely remember interpreting it a couple of weeks ago um a few meters away from this spot and that hope and it doesn't just hope that the listener hears something that's not blah 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 rubbish rubbish stupid idiot james showing off again i don't like this is there an episode of the archers omnibus that i can listen to instead that's all i can do and for the listener just to let you know that the archers omnibus does come online on the bbc sounds app or on your usual podcast of choice at about midday to 1pm every Sunday. That's pretty much when we release private practice podcasts. However, one thing we do know is that Freud listed five unconscious characteristics, so we can at least start to put some things on the map. And the five psychodynamic whatchamacallums, what, who? Five characteristics of the unconscious mind. Freud's unconscious characteristics. Number one, if I can find it on this very complicated map, because I haven't written them as a list, and I know you like lists, but I like maps. Number one, hmm, incompatibility and symmetry, love equals hate. I'm just, I do actually know where I got this from. I'm just going to uh, consult the book to see if it's... Uh... Incompatible what, James? Symmetry and love equals hate. Fortunately, I do actually have the book where I got these from, so I can read the the, the official words. Very handy. According to Phil Mullen, um, so this... Oh, actually, yes. I may as well point out now that in season four, when we were doing Random Topic of the Week... Yes. um, I had all these little books about ideas in psychoanalysis, that the ones that happened to be in my suitcase when I was travelling and the ones that happened to be Random Topic of the Week. Yes. One of them was... The unconscious. And we did actually record an episode that was never released. So, 
According to Phil Mollen, these are Freud's characteristics of the unconscious mind that are not found in the conscious mind. Number one, mutually incompatible impulses or ideas can exist without these appearing contradictory. Love and hate could both be expressed at the same time unconsciously, whereas the conscious mind would experience dissonance about this. Yes, cognitive dissonance. Something that really most of us find very uncomfortable. I mean, for example, James and I have been locked... Not quite locked. We have been, we've been in lockdown for some time with, with uh, our third housemate... We have been, you know, we have, we're, we're in the house together. So the idea that we could both love and hate each other at the same time can be quite difficult. The idea that we might really get on with each other, but also find each other really irritating. It's not easy to hold both of those thoughts in our head at the same time without wanting to choose one that trumps the other. Do I murder the housemate using the pasta or do I feed the housemate pasta because he loves pasta? I thought you were going to use the dichotomy of murder or sex, but you use murder or food. Mm. Love. Okay. Because you love the pasta. I, I mean, one that. of the housemates you do penetrate with your... <laughs> phallus. 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 Okay, I hope you're going to give an equally accessible, um, understandable, real-life example for each one of these. Hopefully, yeah, yeah. So that was number one. So it's about, uh, in the unconscious mind, cognitive dis- dissonance. Is the norm or is just is there? Yeah, so this is a fundamental characteristic that in consciousness, everything is logical and makes sense. And in a way, so one of the flaws of consciousness is that it does distort some truth by its need for rad for rat for rational logic so in your in consciousness you can't love and hate someone simultaneously it doesn't make sense you love them or you hate them you you don't want to kill and marry someone at the same time but in your unconscious you do and your unconscious is constantly feeding consciousness with thoughts and feelings And so when you feel love and hate for someone simultaneously, often you rationalise it. Oh, well, I don't actually hate them. I just, and then whatever logical nonsense follows and you start to believe this fabricated story as being truthful when it's not. It's just that your left brain logical consciousness is constantly trying to make sense of things. Mm Mm-hmm, mm-hmm which is seems ridiculous it's just a it seems like humans are just ridiculous and when the robots finally take over they won't have that problem true say james but who true knows say. so in consciousness we like to have one truth one rational truth that we definitely believe in whereas in your unconscious mind like in your dreams you could be in a petrifying situation in your dream yet it's exciting and you're involved and you're the hero yet you're failing and it doesn't matter that you're both flying and not flying you are your father and not your father you're talking to your enemy who you also love and all that sort of stuff it doesn't matter and uh, you know the example that most of us and and i think we we even know that it's pointless to say but we say i had a really weird dream last night you don't need to say that the dream was weird because it was a dream It'd be much 
more accurate if when you had a dull dream, you know, you said, oh, I had a really dull dream last night. Because people would be like, what, a dull dream? I mean, if you have dull dreams, I feel sorry for you. <laughs> Who even are you? But this goes back to me being uh, the autiste, constantly rationalising things. And so I'm trying not to, because my overwhelming value assigned to science and reason and knowledge and so on, and my overwhelming negative judgment of anyone who behaves in a way that I think is irrational or illogical, just constantly creates this sense of disorder and chaos in my mind that makes that alienates me from social interactions because I feel like I cannot connect with other people because they're inherent irrational behavior is not in alignment with my rational utopia and i in in the process of rationalizing everything i can't see any of my own irrationality i can't see my inconsistencies i can't see anything inside me that is flawed all of that is repressed because i have this craving for everything to be rationalized and wonderful and divine so I'm trying to... That's the thing that I mm. need to get over. Oh, I wonder what's going to happen when the floodgates open. Now, on to number two. Um, on to number two. Are you saying that you need to have some diarrhoea? I don't think I need to have some diarrhoea. No, I just meant go on to number two of Freud's list. One okay. to five of finger me bobs. Okay. Well, it's funny that you said go on to number two because number two is meaning may be displaced easily from one image to another. So there's two ways of doing this. Um, bodily displacement, which is the diarrhea. So it's totally appropriate to be number two, but also psychic displacement. So, for example, father equals lover. Oh, we've got one that's a bit more... Uh, understand. Sorry, say that again. No, I don't get that one. Say that again. So bodily displacement... The intolerable idea that James Hall is not rational and perfect and superior to all other humans is repressed. But that psychic energy doesn't lose its, let's call it heat value. It's still hot in the unconscious. Okay. And that heat is displaced. So just like if you put a hot uh, saucepan on the table, the table becomes hot. If you put a hot intolerable idea into the unconscious the heat transfers to to other ideas the psychic energy is displaced to another idea and that can right, come right, out right, as right. diarrhea if it's bodily it's displaced into a bodily function right but in your unconscious mind you 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 displace an idea but it doesn't it doesn't matter whether it would be intolerable in consciousness it can just it can just sit there happily the displacement will go from one thing that seems perfectly fair my father an image of my father in my dream that's dad but in the dream I could also he could also be my lover and it's not a problem but actually yes. it's not really my dad in the dream it is my lover only it looks like my dad yes and so when you're dreaming you're not applying this edit of logic you're not dreaming thinking well this is stupid this doesn't make sense he's my lover and my father at the same time well don't be ridiculous for heaven's sake yeah, and you could say in reality be in a relationship with a man who's a lot older than you or there might be some very real reason for your dream to use that imagery or that metaphor. We we, we don't really know that. But, you know, I'm, I'm just saying that it's it's not that in your dream 
you are desiring necessarily that your father is your lover that's that's the point it's displaced onto a different it could be like a, a giant pink panda but it's not your lover it's not your lover but you have the same feeling and the same interest and the same attachment with the giant pink panda or your father as you would your lover and there's no problem with that in the unconscious and if a perceptive friend thinks you have daddy issues whether it's you want to take on the role of the paternalistic father or you want that bear to come and rip your anus in half they might jokingly give you a present like a scrub daddy which is loaded with sexual innuendo and you might jokingly hang it in your kitchen they think that I've got a perverse sex life but I don't really and I'm so confident and comfortable with it I can hang their silly joke in my kitchen or alternatively I might be so disgusted with my desire to be a daddy to a young Young, man <laughs> that I buy a scrub daddy and hang it up in the kitchen with no conscious awareness that actually that's representing those filthy desires and containing them. I think we need to move on to number three. I think we need, to move on on. we need to move on. Many different meanings may be combined in one image. So condensation, love, ambition and hunger can all be the same thing. Yeah, I mean, that's a real difficult one, isn't it? I mean, there's not much we can do about that. You know, you might think about something like the tarot cards because tarot cards are kind of like using a tarot cards and runes and all this shit, you know, to divine things. They're using an, a single symbol or a single image to give multiple meanings. So death, you know, oh, no, I'm going to die. No, it doesn't mean you're going to die. It's got all these different meanings that someone who would read your tarot you know read the spread of your cards anyone might, would have a reference to it yeah anyone would have a reference to it but there might be like a whole multitude death might mean rebirth you know the image of the skeleton it might mean loss it could mean sorrow it could mean excitement it could mean danger and in your unconscious mind that's fine to have all that at once but in your conscious mind the image of death means death yeah yeah, Which right. Right. and that's why it makes dream interpretation so difficult. I think maybe in a, in a, perhaps impossible in part two or part theta or part pi or part abstraction of part this tablecloth part tablecloth of this mini series, we'll probably look at dreams in more detail. And that's actually that's going to be difficult for me because well, I'll go into this when we talk about dreams, but. I have a kind of barrier. I kind of shut down. I know that it would be good for me to have a diary next to my bed and that if I wake up with a dream that I should write it down. I know that and I absolutely don't do it. One of my favourite podcasts, the one that I was referencing earlier, the... Farts in the Dark. No, not not Farts in the Dark. um, The American podcast about... Oh, the threesome. The The Jungian threesome. The Jungian threesome. They, the man with the voice. Yeah. Mm. They feature a dream at the end of every episode and I always stop listening. And I, that is something that I never really thought about. I just thought, oh, I don't know if I'm necessarily interested in other people's dreams. I'm mainly interested in the other bit. I, I, rash, I, I applied the, the edit of logic. And also, there are definite threads to oh my, my dreams. Oh my God, are you someone that has the boring dreams? No, 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 no. I dreamed today that I got up and had a yoghurt for breakfast <laughs> sitting at the table whilst the toast was in the toaster. 
Did you, James? You dreamt exactly what happens in your really obvious day-to-day routine, mundane existence. You know that that's not true because a few weeks ago, whenever it was in a recent episode, I said that my my dad is always alive in my dreams, even though he died when oh, I was 16. Oh. And it's always just accepted in the dream that he is alive. Often I, I, I'm, I have the discovery that he came back uh, after years away and it's just sort of like his disappearance is just explained away in the dream and so on. And then you're trying to entice the threesome to to invite you in as a client, I can tell. I can I, well, tell, you, James. You, you, just, you said in this episode that if a Jungian analyst could get their sticky fingers into my recesses, they would really be able to get some dirt under the fingernails. Perhaps. So on to number four. So yes, that's what, but that's why dream interpretation is difficult. We'll come back to dreams. And what was that one called? Condensation? Yes. Because I immediately think of like beads of water on a window, of course. I'm going to have to think about that more. Carry on. Well, that's because the well, the listener can make up their own scientific explanation for what condensation is and how that is an analogy, metaphor, of simile, simile of love, ambition, and hunger being represented by the same symbol in a dream, as an example, which is difficult to interpret, which we'll come back to, because dreams are the main that they were that was the main gateway into psychoanalysis and the and the study of the unconscious yeah it's sort of a kind of a uh, interpretation of dreams although my therapist always asked me what did i think it meant what did i think it meant and what i thought it meant was more important than an, someone else's analysis maybe she recognized that you have really boring dreams and she couldn't bring herself to tell you so she just said what do you think that means the toast popping out of the toaster no. Sorry, James. No. Number four. The processes of the unconscious mind are timeless. Ideas are not ordered temporally and are not altered by the passing of time. So the whole concept of time exists in consciousness. And not in the unconscious. Yes. Yeah, cool. Um, uh, and again, with dreams, you can say, oh, my God, I had the longest dream ever. But I think neuroscience, having studied sleep and dreams to the extent that it can, suggests that dreams are milliseconds long, perhaps even, or, or moments long, or, and they repeat themselves a number of times. So actually the idea that, oh, I had a long dream and all these different things happened, but actually that that isn't how the brain works. Well, no, that, that's something that is actually in this book because there's a there's a a couple of paragraphs about neuropsychological unconscious contemporary science. Whoa, no. And that's where they talk about like rapid eye movements and things essentially proving correct, as is currently believed, theories of Freud that are 100 years old. Whoa. So that's something that we can come back to when we look at Freud in more detail. So are we on number four? That we don't have any time in the unconscious. And number five... And in at number five, in Freud's top five things he thought about the unconscious that he couldn't possibly fucking know... (laughs) ...is... The unconscious pays no regard to external reality but represents internal physical reality. Thus, dreams or hallucinations are perceived as real. 
I think there's a lot of overlap between. He probably thought of three things and thought it would be, it would sound better if I had the five. That one is basically your unconscious mind doesn't give a fuck about reality. Yes. Whereas your conscious mind does. Yes. So if your unconscious mind desperately wants you to prove to the world that you are perfect, but it's impossible for you to be perfect in an unforgiving, imperfect, competitive world, that unconscious mind doesn't think, oh, silly me, for heaven's sake, when am I going to learn reality? Father is not my lover or a bear. (laughs) I didn't kill him with the pasta or fart on his tulip. (laughs) that unconscious core belief is going to persist until one goes through the divine Jungian analytical process of integration and comes out becoming a person and creates the only semblance of free will available to humankind in a world of external forces that we've talked about so much in the Uh, recent episodes only then can someone truly become their self i mean you sounded sort of flippant when you said it but um i think you meant that so quick recap on episode bizarre of a series of twelve thousand. wherever we are in this forest Uh, episode bizarre on a series of twelve thousand. um what we have looked at today is the different subtle yet um more easily understandable now between the subconscious and the unconscious mind we've looked at strong differences that freud perceived between the conscious and the unconscious mind we've had a little look at roots into exploring what is in our unconscious mind such as looking at our dreams thinking about what they might represent we have looked at uh, the beginnings of the map of the unconscious as you have drawn it and we've looked at the way that the body can fuck around with us by producing sensations and experiences and symptoms in your body due to the repression or the 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 thoughts that are the thoughts and drives and the ideas that are going on in your unconscious mind you can experience them through your body um i mean anxiety is just a perfect example of that anyway you know where your body reacts to things that are going on that aren't necessarily uh, consciously in your mind although obviously anxiety can be very conscious um but we started to look at how even though all this stuff these fears these desires these um ideas are there and not necessarily easily accessible to us if at all accessible to us we are experiencing them and they are actually coloring and flavoring the way we live our lives and we've just started to get into that how how the unconscious is really affecting us even though we don't have easy access so on that note what would you say i'm always and i don't know what this says about me but i'm always uh, i've always got one finger in the conscious pie of wondering do we have a very skeptical listener i immediately jump to and this probably comes across i'm probably trying to you can probably tell this um a part of me thinks that the listener doesn't accept any of this and i need to somehow jump through hoops to convey these ideas to a world that doesn't want to go into their unconscious and i could be compl- and i that could have come from anywhere and that could be anywhere on the 0 to 100% scale of accuracy but 
so assuming we have a skeptical listener who thinks this all sounds like weird nonsense to me i don't know if they know what they're talking about i don't i'm gonna go and i'm not gonna bother with any more of this or they might think yeah all right fine but all this weird stuff like that's for people with mental disorders i'm fine it's not this is this it does not apply to me what what might you say to that skeptical listener who is a figment of my imagination well i think probably my first question would be what benefit do you have do you get what gain do you get from denying this as a possibility and what loss might there be for you denying this as a possibility and see what answer i got from that like you know so your initial reaction to what we're talking about is no that doesn't exist well what why would you so why would one so strongly deny that there was anything going on in themselves that they didn't know about? What benefit is it to you? And what loss is it to hold on to that thought if it isn't true? If actually there is a lot going on underneath. What are you protecting? or What are you defending against? What are you stopping happening? So, I mean, I might start talking to them about what they might be scared of if it was true. Um... But, you know, I wouldn't want to push our listener away by demanding that we were right and they were wrong. And I would like to challenge the listener. I'd like to give them some homework this week. Um, The listener, I would like you to try and draw uh, a, a visual representation of something that we've talked about today and to send it to us you can go to the contact us page of private practice podcast you can we don't have social media accounts for the podcast but you can have me on instagram or dan on twitter so you're what on twitter on twitter uh i am at mental london on twitter okay and i am at savage underscore mures m-u-r-e-s i think there's only one underscore On Instagram, um, if you want to send us your pictures of the unconscious, um, I'd love to say that it's compulsory homework and you have to do it, but I can't do that. I don't have that control. And like my suspicion of scepticism in the listener, I I feel like we won't receive a single piece of homework. I feel like the listener will think, I don't know if I'm going to be good enough. I don't know if they'll like my picture. I I might not like it. It might be a waste of time. What's the point in doing this? I suppose for for me, you know, even if it was a single line sketch uh, with a pencil on the back of a receipt or was a photo of something you saw, like, you know, if you see a, um, a car that's burnt out and you think that that's symbolic of something that we've spoken about and you take a quick snap and it doesn't even have to be a good snap. We don't really mind. We're not judging it on its artistic merit. We would just simply like a little bit of communication and an image from you. And if there's condensation on your window, you can simply draw a penis in it, take a photo and send it to us. Privatepracticepodcast.net And obviously, if we were going with your unconscious thinking, you don't have to draw a penis, but you can still tell us it is a penis. so we'll see you next time we'll see you episode boo in the enchanted forest of terrible things and it's a goodbye from me daniel p brown in the private practice podcast studio and is it a goodbye from me because i think i'm lodged in your unconscious permanently so for the rest of this inevitable duration i am the divine the wonderful the glorious 
James Hall. Death love to you all. <laughs> and I want to pregnate your mum. 